2 Samuel is where we'll be this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be in verses 15 through 23, if you want to go ahead and mark that. We're actually going to pick up right in the middle of verse 15. Uh, if your Bible has paragraph divisions, uh, it'll break right in the middle of that verse where we're going to start. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in the middle of verse 15. So I've shared with many of you before, and probably even on the stage, uh, a season that was pretty difficult for my family. Uh, my family of origin, like my, my parents and, and my sisters and I. Um, there for about a year and a half, uh, there was just a significant season of loss. Uh, it started in March of 2005. Uh, my uncle, who was in his 50s at the time, my dad's older brother, uh, his only sibling, uh, had, a, had a heart attack and died suddenly. Uh, then later that year, in November of 2005, uh, my mom uh, lost her dad uh, after a, a brief season of illness and some dementia issues and things like that. Uh, and then in February, actually Valentine's Day uh, of 2006, uh, my dad lost his father after a 10-year battle with leukemia. Uh, it was one of those things the doctors, uh, when he went in for it, I think gave a prognosis of 10 years and ended up being almost exactly that long. Uh, again, that was February the 14th of 2006. And then in July of 2006, his wife, my grandmother, my mom's, my dad's mom passed away as well. Um, she was relatively healthy in February when my grandfather passed away, but many of you have seen that happen before. Uh, when one spouse goes, the other starts to deteriorate quickly. Um, and so it was a significant, a heavy season for our family, again, for about a year and a half. From the sudden loss of my uncle in March of 05 uh, to the passing of my grandmother in July of 06, uh, it was just a, a lot of loss, uh, a lot of funerals that had to be planned, uh, a lot of uh, those of you who have uh, buried parents or other loved ones, all of the red tape and everything that you have to go through uh, that goes on sometimes years afterward, uh, managing all of that and dealing with family and managing that and all the stuff, all the headaches that can come with that, uh, combined with just the, the obvious pain of, of the separation from someone that we loved. Uh, all of those, we believe, died in Christ and that we'll see again someday. Uh, but uh, that painful separation uh, was present, again, for about a year and a half. Um, especially for my dad, uh, that was his only living, well, not his only living sibling. He only had another brother. That's all my grandparents ever had was he and his brother. So he lost his brother, both of his parents, and his father-in-law uh, in about a year and a half span. Uh, my grandmother on my mom's side is still with us, very healthy. Uh, just turned 90 not very long ago. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's something to be excited about. But during that season, um, yeah, it just seemed like it, it was... It was always on our mind during that season. And you know how when anybody passes or there's any significant loss in your life, whether it's the passing of a loved one or something else, um, there's always the first, right? There's the first uh, birthday, anniversary, uh, the first uh, big event at school for a grandchild or a niece or a nephew, uh, the first Christmas, the first Thanksgiving, uh, all of these firsts that come around. And that happened a lot. Uh, and sometimes it was exacerbated by the reality that it was multiple people that were gone. Uh, since the last time we had celebrated that particular event. Uh, and so there was a heaviness about it all, and things changed very rapidly for my family because of everything uh, that had gone on. Not, uh, not just like the entirety of my dad's family being gone, but my mom, uh, or our grandfather, was not only the, uh, 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 the 
main figure in our family, but one of the main figures in our community. Uh, and so it was just this, this widespread sense of loss. But there was an inexplicable, uh, supernatural peace uh, that was present throughout all of that. And really, that's the only kind of peace anyone can have in that kind of moment is a supernatural peace because it's a kind of peace that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you would be able to find peace and not be uh, continually uh, worn out, continually exhausted emotionally, spiritually, walking through a season like that. It wouldn't make sense to be anything other than spiritually exhausted, emotionally exhausted. But there was that sense of peace. I particularly remember it uh, in my grandmother's funeral, the last of the ones that I mentioned in July of 06, particularly remember it then, I was asked to do the funeral of that in First Baptist Church in Lorraine, Texas, West Texas, uh, gave that uh, a sermon and remember just there being, again, just a sense of, of peace. I don't know if it was the, uh, the, the reality and the hope that she was not only gathered with Christ, but also with um, my uncle and my grandfather. I don't know if that, that added to the sense of peace. I don't know exactly what it was, but there was that, that sense of peace behind it all. Loss is probably the most difficult thing that we're going to go through in this life. I say probably. Now, there's always things that exist outside of the norm, but for most people, the loss of others, the human loss, and sometimes the, the material loss, we'll talk about here in a moment, but just the feelings of loss can be some of the most difficult seasons we walk through. Some of you in a room this big, it's 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 obvious that many of you in this room have walked through a season of loss at some point in your life. Uh, maybe it was a premature loss. Like, you know, if you lose an elderly parent, that's sad and heartbreaking, but to be expected to some degree. Uh, but when it's all of a sudden uh, and it's early and it's a young person or something like that, it can be a lot heavier and a lot harder to deal with. And, and so looking at again out at this room, I'm guessing that many of you, most of you, if not all of you, have experienced loss in one of these heartbreaking ways, uh, in one of these realities where you just wonder why things are allowed to happen like that. Uh, and so this morning, as we continue along in our series that we're calling 2020 Hindsight, we're going to talk about loss and the difficulty of loss uh, and how even in loss, we can do like we've been talking about with the, uh, the passages of scripture that we've looked at the last three weeks. We can visualize we can keep in mind what's coming at the end, what we have to look forward to. And realizing what's coming at the end, we can, from that perspective, look back on where we are today. Kind of a forward hindsight to the present to help us manage the reality, the chaos, the uh, uh, sadness, uh, the despair, whatever it is that we're walking through, if we can keep the end in mind, it can give us the strength to make it through our current trials and struggles and frustrations. Like I said, this can be human loss or it could be other types of loss. Other types of loss can be almost as significant. Uh, the loss of health, uh, the loss of ability, uh, if you had some serious injury, the loss of what many people in our world are fearing or experiencing in some degree or another in our world today, the loss of career, uh, the loss of job, the loss of livelihood, uh, and not from death necessarily, but sometimes through other factors, the loss of relationships. All of us walk through seasons of loss. And right now, we have lost some superficial, some deeper, many things in our world. We've lost a sense 
of normalcy. Perhaps we've lost the sense of security. Uh, the division that is present in our world is maybe causing us to lose some relationships in the midst of everything that's going on. And always on top of it, we have regular life coming at us where we're experiencing loss because loss is a part of regular life beyond what we're experiencing specifically in 2020. And as we look at the story, a story of David, a David himself experiencing significant loss, as we look at that story, what I hope that you remember and what I hope that you take away from this is that loss plus Christ equals delayed victory. That loss plus Christ equals delayed victory. That any time that we put Christ into the equation, what is an earthly loss is a victory delayed. It's something that is coming, then again, if we can look forward, that will bring us victory instead of loss. Loss plus Christ equals victory delayed. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, uh, again from 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that's difficult to deal with, and we're going to deal with a little bit of the theological implications that kind of run parallel uh, to the sermon and point that I'm trying to make but need to be addressed anyway. Uh, what's going on in this scripture is that we're not very far separated from when David uh, committed his big sin. Uh, when he committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, whom he saw bathing on a rooftop one day while everybody else was in battle. Uh, and if you know the story, you know that he slept with her. Um, she gets pregnant and has a child. That's what this passage is actually about, is this child. Uh, and then in dealing with the guilt of that, instead of owning it or instead of admitting it, what David decides to do is to take Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, uh, and Bathsheba is often known throughout Scripture as Uriah's wife, uh, and so he decides to take Uriah, send him back into battle, and give the, uh, the word through the commanders to put Uriah at the front lines so that he would be sure to die in battle. In a way, then, David, by using his authority, uh, by using his, his power that was given to him by God's anointing, David takes this power and uses it to essentially put a hit out on someone so that he can have his wife, even though David already had one. And David was already king. David already had children. David already had power. He decides he wants something else, and he takes Uriah's wife. And then Nathan comes on the scene right, right just before the passage we're going to read and tells David this story. And it's, there's this obvious bad guy in the story. And, and David hears the story and he thinks, oh man, how could somebody do that? And Nathan says the famous words, you are the man. You are the bad guy in the story. You need to fix this, essentially. Now David, for his part, um, confesses, or not confesses, owns up to it, repents immediately. Some people think Psalm 51, where David talks about a broken and contrite heart, uh, was him reflecting over this moment. Uh, he repents, uh, and because he repents, uh, Nathan tells him, the prophet Nathan tells him, that David is going to be restored. God is going to continue to use David. But the child that Bathsheba is about to bear, that is the fruit of their adulterous relationship, will not survive. Now, again, we're going to talk about that here in a moment and the theological implications behind it because we just have to. We can't overlook that and move right on and sell past it because it's something that begs to be talked about. But what I hope you see in David's response is the way that he looked forward, the way that he saw what was to come, and it gave him the power to get through what is. Before we dive into the scripture, though, let's pray together one more time. Father, we thank you again for today. Lord, we thank you for your presence here with us. God, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And God, we thank you that you are always 
with us. God, that just as we sang, God, that there is nowhere we can flee from your presence. God, that you are here with us even now. God, even the worst part of this past week, God, that you were with us. And so God, the God who is with us, Lord, may you remove distraction from our mind. May you empty us of the chaos and stress and frustration of the week so that you might speak into us through your Holy Spirit this morning. God, we know that when your word goes out, it does not return void. And so, Lord, I ask that you simply do what you have always done. And God, that is speak through your word. And God, only allow what is of you to stick. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting right in the middle of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Now, real quickly, just note, uh, pointing out David's sin once again, we know her name at this point. Her name is Bathsheba, yet the narrator continues to call Bathsheba Uriah's wife, again pointing out the depth of David's sin and his betrayal to Uriah. Verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Again, a heavy passage. Now, theological question that immediately pops up for me, uh, and maybe you if you're anything like me, is why? Why did it have to happen this way? Uh, why did God punish David uh, after he had asked for forgiveness? Uh, and why did he punish them in this particular way through the life of a child? Uh, the first thing to note is that God is just. Scripture will echo this throughout its pages. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah and uh, Paul and Acts, uh, looking back on Romans, excuse me, um, Romans 11, uh, looking back on Jeremiah, uh, tell us that, that God can do whatever God wants to do, essentially. Uh, that we are clay in God's hands, that if God desires to form some uh, as objects of wrath and some as objects of grace, then God has the right to do so, is what Scripture tells us. Now, I don't think that that means that God is willy-nilly left and right, condemning some people to hell and, and, and saving some people uh, uh, for heaven uh, just without anything ahead of time. I don't think that's at all uh, what's going on here. Uh, but I think it does show us that whatever God does, 
is just. God, by his very nature, is just. And that echoes throughout Scripture uh, uh, that God is just. So no matter what it is, God is just in doing it because he is God. He's the one who uh, is the author of what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, what is just and unjust. But still, again, if you're anything like me, the question is, well, okay, yes, I agree with you, but how is this just? How would God, why would God do this? Now we can believe and we can have faith in the reality that the child is secure. David talks about the child being somewhere, supposedly with God, a place that David will go someday, but the child will not come back to him on this plane. So David is talking about the child being somewhere. Again, we can take it into some sort of eternal kind of rest with God. Uh, The conceptions of heaven, uh, as far as the people in the Old Testament are concerned, are still a little fuzzy. Uh, They're going to get more clear when Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, We have an exceptionally clear view of heaven uh, because we have John with his heavenly vision in the book of Revelation telling us what it's going to be like. We have Jesus saying several things about heaven as well. But in the Old Testament, there was this idea of eternity, but it wasn't as refined as it was for us today. And so when David talks about the child being somewhere that he will go someday, he's talking about that eternal rest. And so we can uh, assume by reading between the lines that the child is secure. And so we can rest in that. Now, why God did exactly this, let me give you the answer. I don't know the answer. Uh, I don't have a clear answer. Uh, and, And sometimes, if we're being honest with the scripture and with ourselves, sometimes the best possible answer to the actions of God in this fallen world from our fallen perspective is to simply say, I'm not really sure why that happened the way that it happened. There has yet to be an answer to the big question that everyone asks, why do bad things happen to good people? There has yet to be a singular answer to that question that that satisfies all seven and a half billion people on the planet simultaneously. There is no singularly agreed upon answer to that question that everybody says, okay, it's not a problem anymore. That problem persists because that question remains. And if you are desiring a God to follow with, about whom you can explain everything with scientific 100% certainty, I hate to break the news to you, but the God of the Bible is not that God. He is beyond our understanding of science. He is beyond our understanding of reality. As Isaiah would say, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. God is above and beyond us. There is no way to explain everything that God has ever done to make human ears and eyes and um, brains understand exactly what God has done and why he has done it. You put that in the file of, I'll ask God when I get there. I don't know if when we get there, we're going to be concerned anymore, uh, but go ahead and put it in that file anyway, just in case there is that question and answer session in heaven when you get there. Because the reality of it is, I think the only honest to goodness answer to that question is, I really don't know why it happened that way. I don't know why it happened that way. I don't know why, if you read the Christmas narratives, I don't know why the Bethlehem massacre occurred. 
Uh, I don't know why the Holocaust occurred. Uh, I don't know why 9-11 occurred. I don't know why coronavirus exists. I don't know the answers to those questions. There are questions that you and I on this side of heaven will never know with a degree of certainty that we think in our modern age that we have to have about everything to make sense of it. Certainty in our world and in our culture has become an idol of sorts when through faith in Jesus, it was never meant to be that way. Go read Hebrews 11 sometimes. And there's a sentence you're not going to find in Hebrews 11. And that sentence is, without certainty, it is impossible to please God. You won't find that in Hebrews 11. But what you will find in Hebrews 11 is, without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is an exercise of faith and understanding that we will come to the end of ourselves in our pursuit of God and understand at some point in our walk that he is bigger than us, that he is wiser than us, that he lives forever. We are finite, at least on this side of heaven, and we will never completely understand his infinite mind and his infinite knowledge, at least until we get beside him in heaven, with him in heaven. All loss is allowed by God. Now, he might not cause it directly like he does in the situation of David. I believe this is a rare circumstance. Uh, this was a pretty heavy thing that David did, and David was an important person. Uh, and, and so there's probably a lot of reasons going on behind the scene of why this particular thing would happen to David that don't apply to 99.9% of the people on the planet. I don't think most of the time that God is doing this, but he allows loss to happen. And we can beat ourselves up trying to answer the question why, or we can set our minds somewhere else and think about what we do know and the goodness that God really is. Certainty is something you're going to have to abandon in a faith relationship with God. There might be people on this planet that won't tell you that, that will shy away from that reality because certainty has become an idol. But I'm telling you forthright, I don't see anywhere in the pages of Scripture where logical certainty is a prerequisite to following God. Instead, faith that goes deeper than logical certainty is a prerequisite to following God. How do I know that knowledge, that certainty is an idol in our culture? Uh, well, everything from the Renaissance on, uh, you know, learning all the things about science that we have in the last several hundred years, uh, certainty has become more and more important. Uh, but a story you've probably heard me tell before, but bears repeating because it illustrates this perfectly, is years ago when Cheryl and I went to New York City, uh, we went to the science of, uh, the Museum of Natural History. Uh, and while we were there, we went to a planetarium kind of thing where you lean back and you look at the big pictures on the sky, on the roof. Uh, and it was a, a, a story, it was a lesson, I guess, better than a story, uh, about the life cycle of a star, uh, from stars from birth to death, uh, and, and going through exactly what's happening and all that. Really intriguing if you're into science. Uh, and then uh, they talk about the death of stars at the end of it, and they talked about the death of our star, the sun. And Whoopi Goldberg is narrating, and as she's talking about the eventual death of our sun, 100 plus million years in the future, as far as they're concerned, when that happens, uh, the sun will, you know, it'll get bigger, and then it'll get smaller, and then it'll explode. That's what they think will happen. Uh, and at some point in that process, the earth is going to be vaporized, right? Uh, it's either going to get so big that it vaporizes us, or we're going to explode in a big fiery mass. Um, and she says, because you can imagine people in the room, especially children, thinking, well, that sounds frightening. Um, and so she says, in, in a reassurance, tone and with a degree of certainty that nearly made me laugh out loud in the theater itself. She says, but don't worry, humanity will have found a way to exist on other planets by that time. 
thought, wow, that's a lot of faith in us. Can I get an amen? Like, I, I know us. Uh, I don't believe in us that much to say, don't worry. Um, we'll be living in another star system by then. Uh, maybe she had watched too many Star Wars or tracks or whatever. I don't know. Uh, and had this kind of faith in humanity. But regardless, it was a point of, it was a factual statement. It wasn't a, I hope this will happen, or we're working on this to see if it will happen. It is, don't worry about it, everything will be fine, we'll be living somewhere else by then. A sense of certainty. And certainty is so much of an idol in our culture, and all you have to do, especially in this political season, is turn on any politician on either side and watch them say with absolute certainty things that are absolute lies. Can I get an amen on that? things that are not true in any way and to stand behind it even when it is disproven to stand behind it over and over again because why they think certainty is so key in our world and a real leader never backs down even if the leader's wrong it's kind of what our world seems to teach i'm here to tell you i don't know and i think sometimes the best leaders are the ones who allow questions to remain and to say what is true i don't know why those things happen another story real quickly uh, at a different church we were at years ago, uh, there was a woman talking about this very idea. And she talked about this time that her father, who was well-respected in the community, uh, much like my grandfather that I mentioned a while ago, uh, there was a story, or at least she had heard a rumor that he had punched some guy in the face. Uh, and that doesn't sound like him at all. He was very, he was very passive, very kind, uh, very empathetic. Again, a, a stalwart leader of the community. Uh, and uh, she was telling us this story about hearing that. And as a child, she remembered thinking like, that doesn't sound like my dad, but... If he really did it, he probably had a good reason to, right? The guy probably had it coming. And I think some way in, 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 in our understanding of God, there's going to be things that God does in Scripture and in the world, or that God allows at least, that from our human minds, we're going to look at and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? How is this beneficial for the kingdom of God? And what, the only thing we could say is, I don't know, but if God allows it, he must be going to do something out of it. He, he must be working behind the scenes somehow. Now, that isn't some trite, uh, everything, you know, everything will be okay, everything's fine, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, there's nothing of that, and I hope you'll see that in a minute, the way that David mourns that we should go there. But I wanted to take that just to make sure we dealt with that issue, that all loss is allowed by God, and that even when it doesn't make sense to us, God is still at work behind what's going on. David, hearing the pronouncement by the prophet Nathan about his son not living, hearing that he is sick and dying, begins the mourning process before his son passes away. And he doesn't just mourn, he mourns inconsolably. His attendants go to him and try to pick him off, up off the floor, but they can't. You ever try to pick up dead weight? Somebody who just won't, just, just lays and you... They try to pick him up and they can't. He just falls back on the floor, mourning once again. They try to get him to eat something and he won't do it for seven long days. He fasts. These were typical elements, laying prostrate, tearing clothing, weeping and gnashing, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, crying. These were typical elements of, of Israelites when they mourned, but David was doing it ahead of time and was doing it again with being completely 100% inconsolable by everyone around him. mourning is an essential part of the Christian's response to loss. 
over the last several years, if you've ever been at a funeral service that I've done, one thing I repeat over and over and over and over and over again, because I think it needs to be repeated over and over and over again in our world around us, is that mourning is good and healthy. It is the proper response to loss. Not only does Scripture tell us in Ecclesiastes that there is a time to mourn, but we have testimony after testimony in Scripture of the Jewish and other Near Eastern people groups that when they mourned, they mourned deeply. Even all the way into the New Testament, you actually see professional mourners in some places at some of the stories of Jesus that would come and help a family mourn the loss of someone that they loved. You would see people do the things like tearing their garments covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was something that they did loudly and that they did openly. Now that is hard to make sense of in our 21st century American world, westernized world, where we think that all emotion, or at least there's still this undercurrent in our culture that says all emotion needs to be bottled up within and stuffed down because we don't want to appear weak. We don't want to inflict anybody else with our pain. Uh, we don't want to uh, uh, seem like as Christians uh, that we don't have faith and that we don't have hope. Uh, and so we take the mourning, we take the tears, we take the anger, we take the frustrations, we take the question and we swallow them over and over and over and over again. And it makes us literally sick, like anxious and depressed because we keep those emotions in when it was never meant to be that way. When you mourn, what is happening is there is something within you testifying to the reality that the way things are are not the way they should be. And if there's any part of you that when you experience loss, human or otherwise, that says it shouldn't be this way, let me go ahead and encourage you that that part of you is absolutely 100% correct. It shouldn't be this way. This is not how we were intended to live. If you want to look how we were intended to live, go back to the very beginning of the book and read what was going on in the Garden of Eden. It was perfect unity between man and womankind, between people themselves, between uh, people and the earth, and between people and God. It was perfect unity all the way around. And since then, we have been sighing for that Eden sighing for that reality, looking around and noticing everywhere we see fallenness at work that it shouldn't be this way. You are right. It should not be this way. Especially when it's someone that you love and are loved by. The pain that you bear when you experience loss is only there because of the depth of the relationship that has been temporarily severed. If you didn't care about that person, you wouldn't mourn because guess what? There are millions of people on our planet that die every day and you don't mourn because you don't have a connection to them. But when it's someone that you love and that you care about and that you are loved by and that cares about you, there is a sense of mourning that comes with it and that is good, I would argue, and holy even, in that it recognizes the love that God has allowed us to experience with that individual and the brief glimpse of what heaven will be like to experience that kind of camaraderie and community with someone that we live alongside of. Mourning is an essential part of the Christian response to loss. The way that David responds, his attendants look at it and say, David, pull yourself together. You're the king. Get up off the ground. Eat some food. Clean yourself off. Leave him alone. Let him mourn. 
and let the one who experiences loss mourn and go ahead and experience that mourning and realize that there is joy underneath it, that there is a sense of peace that comes alongside it, but that mourning itself can be good and helpful. Because even expectations plus the fall equal loss. We expect things to be like they were in Eden, and they're not. And because of that, we experience that pain of loss. The child dies. And David's servants fear what his reaction might be. And you can see them having the conversation. I'm not going to tell him. Well, I don't want to tell him either. You saw the way that he reacted when the kid was sick. Now that the kid is dead, what do you think he's going to do? And it literally says in the scripture that we just read that they had this conversation with themselves and one of them said, I fear that he might hurt himself. I fear that he might take himself out. That's how deep they saw David's pain. Again, it tells us about David's mourning and how deep he went into mourning. And you can understand their responses. I don't want to be the guy who pushes him over the edge with this news. But David hears them whispering. You know, I've been through in my, with my own family and in, with other families, been through those seasons of loss where I can almost be in this room at this point when I'm reading through the scripture. You've been there, many of you. You're in a waiting room where a lot of times bad news is delivered. A doctor comes out and you hear the doctor whispering with the family members and you can see the look on their face and you know what happened. Or you know that someone that you care about is in the hospital or something, you know, is, is having some medical issues and uh, there's that phone call at 1130 at night. You pick up and you can hear only one side of the conversation, your spouse or your parent or your friend or someone else. And you can hear and you know what happened. David hears them whispering to the side and he knows what happened. And he stands up and he says to him, hey, is the child dead? And very frankly, they said yes. Or they answered, he is dead. Matter of fact. And then, again, you would think, I would think, like the attendants, that David would be pushed off the deep end at this point. But instead, David responds in a very incongruent way. He gets up, pulls himself together, cleans himself up, and goes to worship God. And then eat after that after he had been fasting for seven days I find it remarkable that David's first response is to worship you know we see that in the book of Job too I know we already dealt with Job but in the first trial of Job where Job loses all of his family except his wife and basically all that he owns there is this, this towards the end of chapter 1 where Job says naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return the Lord gives and the Lord takes away blessed be the name of the Lord where even in the midst of that loss, he worships. David does the same thing. And then his attendants, who again are looking on at this and thinking to themselves, what in the world? Now, we're getting it in just a few sentences. This was probably over the span of hours, him, him cleaning himself up, him, him worshiping, and then him finally going home to get something to eat. His attendants, you can imagine, is probably just gnawing at them, wondering, what, why is he okay now? We, we couldn't even get him up off the ground a couple of days ago. What, what is the deal it, it finally, one of them, because it's burning in their brains so much, finally voices the question and essentially says to David, hey man, what's up? While the child was still living, you were inconsolable, but now you're eating? Now 
you're worshiping, now you're cleaning yourself up, what gives? And David's response to them is, well, when the child was still with us, I was holding out hope. I know that God has said things in the past and relented. I've heard the stories, David might say, of God relenting and not punishing the people like he said he was going to do when Moses would intervene on their behalf. And so looking back on that, perhaps David thought that he could do something and God might change his mind. And so he mourned the way that he did because he was still holding out hope that the child might be saved. But once the child was dead, David essentially says, what is the point of fasting? I'm not going to bring him back. We hadn't gotten to the Jesus resurrection stuff yet. And so as far as David knew, it wasn't going to happen. He wasn't going to come back to life. But he says, I, he will not come back to me, but I will go to him. And from that point forward, David is able to pick himself up. And the story moves on very quickly from this point. And we don't even know if it's really chronological because there's some other kids that were probably birthed in between uh, this child and Solomon. But eventually Bathsheba gives birth to Solomon. Solomon ends up being the next king. Solomon ends up being the very person in David's lineage through whom the ancestry of Christ would run. Getting mentioned in the gospel narratives when Jesus' genealogy is given. And we see David move on to do great things despite this incredible loss over which he mourned deeply. You see, any mercy God delays today will be given to us in eternity. This is not some trite, oh, it'll be better someday. This is a understanding and a belief and a faith that one day in the future, one day everything will be made right. And what was taken from us will be given back and then some. To allude back to Job again, when Job has his fortunes restored at the end of the book of Job, he has given back as many children as he lost and then double all the stuff that was taken from him was given back to him in return. David knew. He didn't have the concept of heaven the same way that we do, but he knew that God would take care of that child. He knew that one day he would be gathered with that child. He knew that a reunion was coming. There are many reasons that I'm excited about the prospect of what heaven is going to be like. I hope that and I believe that foremost amongst them is knowing that I will be in the literal presence of God Almighty and Jesus my Savior for eternity, singing praises forever. But I also wonder what else heaven is going to be like. I wonder about the reunions that are coming. I worry about the sights and sounds. So, I said worry, I wonder is what I meant. I wonder about the sights and sounds of what heaven is going to look like. I wonder sometimes even about beings that are extinct animals. Are they going to be there? Are we going to get to experience that part that happened? Are we going to be able to see into the depths of space and the glory of creation? I wonder about a lot of those things. But most of the time, to be honest, and I'm just 37 years old. I hope I still have a long life ahead of me. But as I get older, the longer I live, and those of you who are older than me can probably testify to this with a hearty shake of your head, the more I think about heaven, the more I think about the people who are going to be there waiting. They're not waiting. They're busy. They got Jesus to praise. It's not like they're sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting on me to show up, but they're there. <coughs> and as I was reading this passage, I tried to imagine what it will be like to see David face to face. And you know what image came to my mind? I wonder if David is going to have this little baby bouncing him on his knee. That day that he looked forward to that was taken from him by God's judgment and because of his own mistake, if God was going to restore that and then some. 
And if you know the rest of the story of David, if you know the rest of the story of his sons, and how many of them tried to backstab him or each other, treated their sister terribly in the story of Tamar, a terrible story in the history of the Old Testament. I wonder about them too. I wonder if Amnon and Adonijah and Absalom, I don't know what happened to those guys, but I wonder if they're going to be hanging out too with their little brother. If Tamar will be there in her regal glory after being abused that she was, the way that she was in Scripture. When all that is wronged will be righted. When all that is lost will be returned and then some. I look forward to seeing my grandfathers, my mamaw, my Uncle Dennis. I look forward to seeing my brother-in-law, Tim. I look forward to seeing many people throughout my 17 years of ministry now that I know have gone on to the other side. I look forward to talking with them. And like I said, I don't even know if it's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to be so just ate up with Jesus that I don't care about any of the rest. But I do wonder. And I know David had to as well about that day that was coming. And I think he knew as he decided to move forward because of what laid ahead that loss plus Christ equals delayed victory. Our end is and will be victory. I have a certainty that is rooted in faith in Christ about that truth that goes beyond any question or doubt that I may have. Because I know how good God is. I know how good He is because I see that goodness in the thumbprints and the people all around me that are created in His image. I see that goodness in the, in the rain that falls on dry ground like it did this week. I see the goodness in the change of seasons. There's some 50-degree weather coming. Can I get an amen from my Texas brethren and sister? And I'm looking forward to that day when I can experience that goodness totally. And I know that it's coming because I know that the God who would send his own son to die for me would not hold back anything to give me what is best. Even if I don't understand it. And so for all of us here this that are walking through some sort of loss. That's my best guess. Some of you, it might be human. Some of you, it might be something else. Some of you, it might be a loss that is decades old that you still haven't completely recovered from. And that really, you're never going to get over. You don't really get over loss. Just things happen as a new normal, and that's okay. But as we walk through seasons of loss, may we know that victory, while it might be temporarily delayed, it's coming. And because it is coming, we can pick our head up and we can walk forward with our face set fast on what is to come, knowing that victory is coming. During our time of invitation this morning, if there's anybody here that does not know Christ as Savior, I just want to tell you that he can give you back anything that you thought you've ever lost and then more. 
And if you want to know what it's like to know Christ as Savior, I would love to talk to you about that during our time of invitation. While our band is playing this last song, I'll be standing down here. You can come and pray with me. I'll be here around here after the service is over if you would like to talk then as well. And for those of you who do know Christ as Savior, inevitably, many of you are in seasons of loss right now. Or you're fresh out, or you know that one's coming. I encourage you today to be encouraged and to know that Christ will pull you through, that victory is coming, and may that give you strength to walk through whatever you're walking through. And if you need to pray about that or anything else, again, I'm down here to do that with you this morning. I'll be hanging around after the end of the service. The altar where the stairs are, you can kneel and pray there if you would like to. You can always pray right where you are at. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in worship once more. And as they do, may you take this time to spend with God and respond in whatever way he's calling you to. Father, again, we thank you for your presence here this morning. God, to say that you are good feels like such an understatement. But Lord, our words fail to describe your goodness. God, we thank you for being with us, even in the midst of pain and loss. And God, even when it's lost, we don't understand. God, we trust in you. And we know that victory is coming. We believe that victory is coming. God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, may you call them today. And God, for those of us who do know you, God, if there's anyone here who is experiencing deep loss, Lord, may you encourage their heart through the unsurpassing peace of your Holy Spirit this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name.